This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. Welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science webinar series. This year, we are organizing these webinars as themed mini-series dedicated to the world-class research at Scripps. Tonight, we present the last in a three-part series dedicated to research for resilience on a changing planet. This series highlights Scripps oceanography programs that inform science-based decision-making, resource management, and climate change adaptation as a key part of their mission. And it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Aaron Satterthwaite. Erin is a California Sea Grant Extension Specialist based at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the coordinator of one of the longest marine ecosystem time series ever conducted called the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations, CalCoffee. Dr. Satterthwaite is a marine ecologist who works at the interface of applied marine research, policy engagement, and science communications. Erin completed a PhD in ecology at the University of California, Davis, and a BA in biology at Juaniata College. Prior to her current position at Scripps, Erin was a California Sea Grant State Fellow with the NOAA Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Erin's current position is part of a new partnership between CalCoffee and California Sea Grant. In this role, she, she is working with the CalCoffee team to usher in a new era of broader engagement with government agencies, the general public, public and the academic community. Tapping her broad experience as a NOAA Fellow and Marine Ecosystem Scientist, Erin works with key stakeholders at the state, national, and international levels to increase the impact of CalCoffee data on the sustainability of marine resources in the context of a changing climate. Please join me in welcoming Erin for her talk entitled Long-Term Ocean Observations in Support of a Sustainable Future for California, the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations, CalCoffee. Thanks so much for that warm introduction and for inviting me to speak. It's an absolute pleasure to get to be here with you all this evening. And because we meet on this virtual platform and are calling in from various places, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the importance of the lands and coasts that we each call home. In doing so, we reaffirm our commitment and responsibility to improving relationships between nations and to improve our own understanding of local indigenous people and their cultures so we can continue to move together forward in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. And in particular, I'd like to acknowledge that in San Diego, we are on the unceded territory of the Kumeyaay Nation. Today, the Kumeyaay people continue to maintain their political sovereignty and cultural traditions as vital members of our San Diego community. I'd like to warmly acknowledge their tremendous contributions to our region and thank them greatly for their stewardship. And Indigenous people have been experiencing and observing the California environment for many generations, and we still have a lot to learn. Stanley Kubrick once said, observation is a dying art. But I'd much rather say observation is a forgotten art. But I'm hopeful that this is becoming less true as we find the immense value in our individual and collective observations. And so I'd like to start off with a personal story that details my interest and connection to the sea and really what's drawn me to observation, science, and marine ecology. 
What initially captivated me about the sea were the undulations, consistent pulses of energy, the waves, gleaming, fleeting traces of them, coming and going, leaving those elegant squiggly lines in the sand. I started by wandering in the sand, then playing in the waves, and then eventually learning to ride the mountains of water. One day, while sitting on my surfboard atop the hills of water, moving under me as swiftly as a river, I felt a surge of energy. And all of a sudden, the water transformed into quicksand beside me, and then reformed into a boiling, seething, salty broth. From the depths, a huge creature emerged and gently rolled to the side, unveiling an eye the size of a large jet black plate that tipped towards me. And my first thought was shark, but I quickly realized that it was in no way, shape or form a shark. It was actually a curious whale coming to observe us, the peculiar neoprene laden surfers that bobbed at the surface. And I was immediately stunned and then transfixed. I was transfixed fully in this moment of shared observation. All my cells focused clear attention on the eye of this stunning being. I was awestruck. Until it eventually slid back under the deep blue aqueous veil, dark as the sky at nightfall. And so the poet Robert Frost said, we begin in infancy by establishing correspondence of eyes with eyes. So that shared observation has been a source of inspiration for me in my life and work as a researcher. And it's through observation that it employs our senses. Individually, we have the tools to observe the world through our five senses and through our individual perceptual process. We gain information and knowledge about the environment that's vital to our survival and well-being. And this helps us to act within our environment, such as the basics like finding food, water, shelter, reading other people, or the not so basic things like following that little blue dot on our smartphone to get to our next destination. And these observations and other forms of perception are fundamental to the practice of science. And increasingly with science, we have many tools that amplify and enhance our sensory capabilities. And this is especially necessary below the water. For example, we have microscopes to see the tiny alien light creatures we pull out from the deep and acoustic sensors to listen to the surprisingly loud life underwater. And we also have systems that serve as our collective sensory system for the sea. These are known as ocean observing systems. And so ocean observing programs are our collective sensory systems. Ocean observing programs are research and monitoring programs that collect long-term measurements on the environment and ecology of the ocean. Ocean observing programs help us to collect data through observations that are vital to generate the shared wisdom we need to address our increasingly complex social and environmental challenges. So in other words, just as our individual perceptual systems help us to navigate the world as individuals to satisfy our own needs, observation programs help us to do this by collecting data that then gets used for research and then converted into the knowledge and wisdom needed so we can make sure that we collectively sustain and satisfy our needs, especially since the oceans provide us with vital gifts and services such as food, well-being, energy, medicine, among many, many others. 
and programs that are older and wiser provide information that is increasingly relevant to adapting and mitigating climate change. One such observing program is the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations, fondly known as CalCoffee. And CalCoffee is the oldest integrated marine ecosystem observing program in the world. CalCoffee has holistically been observing the physics, chemistry, and biology of the California ocean since 1949. CalCoffee goes out on research cruises four times a year and travels from San Diego to north of San Francisco Bay, sampling the entire ocean from the surface to the bottom, from right on the coast to over 300 miles out to sea. On its way, it stops at between 75 and 115 locations, some of which have been stopped since the program's beginning. Thus, CalCoffee spans state, national, and international waters. Another interesting thing about CalCoffee is that it's a very unique partnership of an academic organization, so Scripps Institution of Oceanography, a state agency, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and a federal government agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Southwest Fisheries Science Center in San Diego. So these organizations, as well as many others, have been working together to generate useful knowledge from local to international scales. And here is a very quick glimpse into what a day out sampling with CalCoffee looks like. You can see that there's many different instruments that go down into the ocean to take measurements on the physics, chemistry, and biology of the sea. And the kaleidoscope of data that CalCoffee collects provides invaluable information on the marine ecosystem off the coast of California to generate and support research and inform the sustainable management of marine ecosystems. And this is especially important under increasing ocean uses and in the context of climate change. So for the next part of our journey together, I'd like to highlight a few stories that show how CalCoffee observations have been used to understand, predict, and manage our changing marine ecosystems. Our first story is about a small hero, that's a small fish with a big story, the Pacific sardine. Pacific sardines are small schooling fish that can live up to 15 years and they reach just over a foot long. They live from Baja, California up to Southern Alaska and can live up to about 150 miles offshore. And sardines are both ecologically and economically important. They're important food for many whales, seals, birds, and other marine animals and are a vital food source for us. But this hasn't always been the case. The earliest known printed picture of a sardine was found in a French book entitled The Whole Story of Fish over 450 years ago in 1558. And then over 150 years ago in 1858, the small fish had an equally small name. A dispatch from San Francisco in the New York Tribune said this about the sardine. The cod, halibut, herring, salmon, smelt, sturgeon are abundant and are easily caught, while a large market is ready to buy them at a high price. A small fish called the sardine, supposed by many to be a species of herring, is abundant, but not much value is commonly attached to it. Although this sentiment didn't last very long, 
Quickly, the little fish became a big name. In 1916, attention quickly turned to sardines in response to food shortages during World War I. The military provided an important market for West Coast fishing companies as sardine became an essential new food for the war. It was canned for food, rendered for oil, and also used as fish meal and bait. Thus, this explosive demand for canned sardines led to Pacific sardines supporting one of the largest fisheries in the Northwestern Hemisphere. And at its peak in the mid-1930s, the sardine fishery off the California coast was probably one of the most intensely exploited fish stocks in world's history. Since the prevalent belief at the time was that the oceans were inexhaustible and that man could not affect the species in the sea. And the fishery was pulling up an average of 600,000 tons annually and topping out at over 700,000 tons in 1936 and 37. And these were processed by more than 100 canneries spanning between San Diego and San Francisco. And these canneries employed thousands of workers who would eviscerate, can, and package the sardines. And so to give you a sense of this scene, Famously, John Steinbeck opened his 1949 novel, Cannery Row, by describing Monterey's waterfront zone of sardine factories as a poem, a stink, a grating noise, a quality of light, a tone, a habit, a nostalgia, a dream. And he goes on to describe the scene of the sardine boats bringing their catch into the harbor to be processed. The whole street rumbles and groans and screams and rattles while the silver rivers of fish pour in out of the boats and the boats rise higher and higher in the water until they are empty. The canneries rumble and rattle and squeak until the last fish is cleaned and cut and cooked and canned. And so around that same time, in a great moment of foreshadowing, the researcher Dr. Francis Clark was one of the few voices warning that the demand exceeded supply and that the rapid growth in the sardine processing industry was unsustainable, likely leaving the future of the California sardine fishery in doubt. But her warnings were not heeded. And with the Second World War, the demand for sardines continued to soar. Here's a government-issued poster that illustrates the need for fishing companies to catch more fish in support of the war effort. But then in the mid to late 1940s, catastrophe struck the sardine industry. The large fishing fleet and once thriving fisheries that made up the Silver River that for years had poured out of boats and into California's wallet gradually dried up. By the mid to late 1940s, the sardine fishery had collapsed completely for unknown reasons, leaving only a stunned and very angry California community. The public, state legislators, and leaders of the fishing industry called for a full-scale investigation into the causes of this spectacular decrease in sardine numbers. In response to the catastrophic failure of the Pacific Coast sardine fishery, as well as the corresponding puzzling scientific issues raised by this dramatic collapse, Earl Warren, who was the governor of California at the time, established the Marine Research Committee which would distribute funds collected from attacks on fish landings to fund a new multi-agency and multidisciplinary scientific program to better understand the collapse of the sardine fishery. And this was called the California Cooperative Sardine Program. 
which later became known as the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations, CalCoffee. So the main goal of the program was to understand what caused the sardine collapse. Was it human caused due to overfishing or was it environmentally or ecologically driven or was it some combination of the two? And specifically the program's goal was to investigate the sardine in relation to its physical and chemical environment, its food supply, its predators and its competitors to evaluate the findings in terms of the survival of the young and in terms of the distribution and availability of the sardines when they reach their commercial size. This holistic approach to understanding the sardine collapse, so understanding not only the characteristics of the sardine itself, but also its biology, ecology, and environmental context was extremely innovative. The founders of CalCoffee were visionary in taking this ecosystem approach to fisheries management. So specifically, at the beginning of the Cal Coffee surveys, a decision was made to identify and enumerate the eggs and larvae of all species of fish obtained in the plankton collections in order to evaluate the ecological associates of the sardine. In other words, the program holistically explored the ecological and environmental factors to better explain the dramatic declines and reappearances of the sardines. And this became known as the oceanographic approach or ecosystem approach to fisheries research and management. And this really paved the way for novel ways of managing fisheries, which is known as ecosystem-based fisheries management. Although the decline of the sardine population was the motivating force behind cow coffee, the investigations were designed to have this very broad ecological base. And so the cow coffee program and its pioneer researchers demonstrated that systematic egg and larval fish surveys are a very powerful tool for evaluating the potential fishery resources. And because of Cal Coffee, 98 to 99% of the fish larvae collected in the California current region can be identified to genus or species, which is a whole lot of different types of fish. And so after nearly 50 years of fishing for the Pacific sardine, a moratorium on landings was imposed by the California legislator in 1967. And by the time this moratorium was imposed, the sardine fishery in Southern California had already collapsed. Then in the 1970s, sardine eggs and larvae were found in cow coffee samples. And in 1986, the population had recovered and the fishery reopened, but then crashed again in 2015. And it's been low ever since. So then what was going on? Initially, it was heavily debated by researchers whether overfishing or natural variability was the cause of the sardine collapse. And it's only because of the extensive Cal Coffee time series with over seven decades of data that we've been able to determine that it's likely a combination of the two factors. Climate variability is a key driver of changes in sardine populations and fishing may accelerate the collapse. And specifically, the Pacific Ocean actually undergoes these warm and cold cycles that last anywhere from 20 to 30 years. And sardines tend to do better in the warm periods. So we really wouldn't be able to understand these long-term changes and fluctuations in the population of sardines if we had only a few years of observations. So making sure to consider the coupled effects of the environmental variability over these longer timescales 
and fishing effort on sardine populations off the California coast is essential to a more sustainable fishery. And Kalkafi data have continued to support the annual determination of the acceptable catch limits, which are in place to prevent overfishing. And also, there's a precautionary measure that's built into sardine management to stop directed fishing when the population falls below 15,000 tons. So this year, in 2020 to 2021, the proposed annual catch limit for the Pacific sardine fishing year is very minimal. It's at around 4,200 tons, and this is mainly only allowed for the live bait fishery. And this, these proposed rules are intended to conserve and manage the Pacific sardine stock off the U.S. West Coast. So overall, Kalkafi observations continue to be used to understand long-term changes related to climate variability and change off the coast of California and for research to inform the sustainable fisheries management in California. And this is for, includes many other types of fish, as well as for ecosystem-based fisheries management, which brings that same holistic ecosystem ethos that Kalkafi was founded on to both research and management. And so for our next story, we'll explore the story of the birds, a real biological whodunit. And so because the founding Kalkafi scientists took this holistic ecosystem approach to understanding the sardine fishery in the context of the interconnected marine ecosystem off the coast of California, there are observations from 1949 to now on the tiny plants of the sea, known as phytoplankton, as well as the tiny floating animals known as zooplankton, along with the fish larvae and eggs that I mentioned before. And these observations are preserved in the Pelagic Invertebrate Collection at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So the Kalkafi program not only has the longest record of marine ecosystem observations, but also the physical specimens themselves. So effectively, the Kalkafi samples act as a kind of time machine allowing us to travel back in time to answer unanticipated questions about the marine ecosystems of the past. So let's hop into this time machine. So for this next part, we're gonna travel back in time to August, 1961. And I want you to use your imagination here. It's an early fog enclosed pre-dawn morning on the central California coast in the hamlet of Santa Cruz. You're awakened at 3 a.m. by thuds on the outside of your home. You have no idea what, could, what it could be, so you struggle to the door. Upon opening the door, you see hundreds, if not thousands of birds, sooty shearwaters, slamming against your home and raining down out of the sky. The birds are heavy with anchovies, and as they slam into the sides of buildings and other structures, they spew fish blood and partly digested fish. As you look down the street, you see dead and stunned seabirds littering the road. Panic sets in, and it feels like you are living in a horror movie. You're not certain if you even woke up from sleeping. That visualization was actually inspired by two accounts of the same event from longtime Santa Cruz residents in 1961. And this freak event was published in the Santa Cruz paper, as you can see here. And not coincidentally, this frenzy inspired a classic piece of eerie California cinema, Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Birds, 
which Hitchcock actually got the idea from the accounts that were published in the Santa Cruz paper. And for more than half of a century, the 1961 bird frenzy puzzled scientists. But then in 2012, researchers used the Kalkofi samples in the pelagic invertebrate collection to travel back in time to right before the incident. They looked at the tiny plants, the phytoplankton, in the guts of the preserved zooplankton, and guess what they found? They found high quantities of pseudonychia, which is the type of phytoplankton that flourishes in warm water and in low wind conditions and can produce a neurotoxin called demoic acid. And so it was this toxin, the demoic acid, that likely moved up the food chain. The zooplankton ate the tiny toxic floating plants and the fish ate the plankton. And then eventually the fish were gobbled up by the birds in Monterey Bay. And this accumulation of toxins throughout the food web likely led to the bird's very erratic behavior. And it's known that this neurotoxin actually passes through the blood-brain barrier in birds and mammals, and it can cause confusion, disorientation, seizures, coma, and in some cases, even death. So does this sound familiar? It is, because Kalkafi helped us to find the culprit. Harmful algal blooms, which are large amounts of phytoplankton pro producing toxins, and helped us to solve the mystery of the birds. But horror stories like this are not just a thing of the past. For example, in the fall of 2014, many locations along the California and West Coasts saw an unprecedented increase in the temperature of the ocean. And the warming of the ocean along the coast was related to a coastal intrusion of an extremely warm pool of water that had been building offshore in the Gulf of Alaska since the fall of 2013. And it's been fondly referred to as the blob, which kind of also sounds like a horror film. <laughs> Kalkafi observations helped us to understand these large-scale oceanographic dynamics. Researchers found that unprecedented warm water led to a sustained record-setting harmful algal bloom caused by the same culprit from the birds event, the toxin-producing phytoplankton, pseudonychia. And the demoic acid produced by this phytoplankton accumulated in crabs and shellfish, which caused a shutdown of crabbing and clamming for human health concerns. And this severely affected both the very lucrative Dungeness crab fishery as well as the more popular recreational razor clam fishery. In addition, whale entanglements were an indirect result of this record-breaking HAB event because the delay of the crab fishing season resulted in higher numbers of crab pots along the whale migration and feeding routes. And so this warmer water blob actually compressed the food-rich coastal habitats for whales, causing them to occur much closer to shore. In addition to that, there was a record number of illnesses and deaths of marine mammals and seabirds, which were also caused by this food web transfer of the harmful algal bloom toxins. But on a lighter note, algal blooms are also responsible for the mesmerizing neon light displays that you may have seen sometimes glowing in the breaking waves and along the beach of the California coasts at night. So because Kalkoffi samples the physics, chemistry, and biology of the marine environment, it allows us to really understand these complex linkages that exist between the ocean temperature and biological organisms, such as harmful algae, seabirds, and marine mammals along the California coast. 
and then how that changes with these large-scale changes in climate. Also, the Kalkoffee samples in the Pelagic Invertebrate Collection at Scripps can provide answers to questions that weren't originally anticipated, as we saw with the case of the birds, and effectively provide a time machine to travel back in time to observe the marine ecosystem at a very specific snapshot in the past. So overall, Kalkoffee helped us to solve this biological mystery. So now for our final story, we're going to travel from the bird frenzied and glowing sands of the California coast to a bit more offshore in the open ocean. And this story is more forward-looking in our quest for power through renewable energy. As you might be aware, there's an increasing global shift to renewable energy, and this includes offshore renewable energy. An offshore renewable energy consists of the generation of electricity from ocean-based resources, so most commonly from wind, but also from waves, tides, and characteristics of the water, like the salinity, so the salt content, as well as the thermal properties. And recently, plans for offshore wind development along the California coast have begun to get underway, since offshore wind is positioned to play a very large role in helping California and the nation as a whole meet its renewable energy goals. So there are a few sites that are being discussed in California off of Morro Bay and near Humboldt County. And the potential of these massive floating wind farms is that they could produce about 4.6 gigawatts of electricity. And just to be able to conceptualize that, it's enough power to power 1.6 million homes. So with anything that's part of our human-built environment, there are effects of these structures going into the ocean on the marine ecosystems, as well as on our human coastal communities. For example, in some cases, birds flying through the wind farms can actually collide with the rotor blades and also the hubs of the wind turbines. And under the water, marine mammals can collide with or become entangled in cables and mooring lines that are used in the renewable energy structures. In other cases, since as you might know, noise travels long distances underwater and can be very loud, many of the activities associated with the surveying, construction, operation, and decommission of wind farms generates underwater noise. And the construction phase tends to be the noisiest and it's been shown to displace marine mammals and fish. And then finally, the actual physical space that the structures take up can impact where fishing, whale watching, and other boaters are able to go. And so observations on the marine ecosystems near proposed renewable energy sites are needed. And this can include information on the populations of the animals themselves, their movement, their migratory behavior, of things like birds, marine mammals, and fish species. And all of this information can then be used to help to better time the building efforts to avoid these potentially affected species, as well as determining the most optimal locations to put these various renewable energy projects that conflict least with the vulnerable marine animals and also limit the overlap with existing ocean uses, such as fishing and recreation. And so Kalkoffee cruises provide an assessment of fish, seabird, and marine mammal abundance, densities, distributions, and habitat use patterns, 
And so the observations from the Cal Coffee program provide extensive insight into the environmental effects of these floating offshore wind platforms in California, especially related to things like seabirds, marine mammals, and fish. So one example of this is that researchers are currently in the process of using the Cal Coffee seabird density distribution data and combining that with estimates of seabird population collision vulnerability. So similar to this map here, you can see that the high vulnerability is in red and the lower vulnerability is in yellow. And the goal of this is to generate a map of the potential impact of the wind farms on seabirds. So that map will then combine the seabird impact map with a wind power production map like this map here. And so you can see the higher wind power production is generally offshore and it is in the warmer tones, so like the reds and oranges. And then both of those maps will be combined with a fisheries value map like this one. So you can see the higher value areas are in the dark green and the lower value areas are in the lighter tones. And then all of these maps will allow the researchers to conduct an analysis to determine the optimal locations for wind farm development. And so the goal is to determine which sites are best to maximize power generation while minimizing impacts to marine animals and the existing ocean uses like fishing. So in this way, Cal Coffee data are being used to help to select these ideal locations that really minimize the negative impacts to marine species and fishing communities while still harnessing areas that have this very high wind potential. And more broadly, as energy and aquaculture and these transport projects are being established offshore, the logistic and operations become very complex and challenging. Getting out into the open ocean, the elements are extremely harsh. So as we've discussed here, the development and operation of these marine projects and the associated structures can exert these unknown and cumulative pressures on the ocean. And so these multi-purpose offshore platforms are one way that people are working to address these issues to meet the growing demands for these offshore ocean areas. And so these multi-purpose platforms provide a way to integrate various ocean uses into a single unit. So for example, these platforms could combine offshore energy with aquaculture, recreation, and possibly transportation. And in doing so, it provides significant benefits kind of economically in terms of the shared use of the infrastructure, the resources and the services, but also can minimize impacts from many different structures going in. But their development is still very much in the early stages. And the only pilots that I'm aware of for these multi-use platforms are currently being developed in Europe. So overall, Cal Coffee observations allow us to understand how our ocean uses affect marine ecosystems and ensure that we're balancing ocean use with the integrity of the ecosystem. The long-term consequences of the addition of large-scale structures offshore on marine life are still very unclear, especially since these technologies are relatively new. So we'll need to continue to monitor and assess the effects over longer periods of time 
to really understand the changes in the marine ecosystems. And Kalkafi observations are ideal for this since they've been collecting data on the marine environment for over 70 years. So Kalkafi can help to provide a baseline, an understanding of the changes over time, as well as really helping to minimize unwanted impacts on marine animals, such as fish, seabirds, and marine mammals. So in summary, just as our individual sensory systems help us to better understand and interact in the world, ocean observing programs are our collective sensory system for our shared societal needs. Specifically, Cal Coffee is our oldest and wisest collective sensory system that we have for making shared decisions about the ocean. And as we saw through the case studies, Cal Coffee provides us vital observations in order to continue to sustainably harvest food from the sea, ensure that we have healthy oceans and healthy people, such as by predicting and understanding harmful algal blooms, and finally, to balance our continued and increasing use of the ocean, such as for things like offshore renewable energy and aquaculture, while sustaining and, in my mind, ideally enhancing the integrity of the complex marine ecosystems that we're so intricately linked to. And so now I'm curious what you think. Do you think observation is becoming a remembered art? I definitely hope so, but I guess only time will tell. And with that, I'd like you all to be a part of the Cal Coffee community and help us to observe the ocean off of California. And I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in chatting more. You can email me at my UCSD email here. Uh, you can also join our mailing list and explore our Cal Coffee data. You can follow us on social media, support our outreach and diverse engagement efforts, and finally, stay tuned for a Cal Coffee citizen science app that's being developed by a team of data science, computer engineering, and marine science students at UCSC, which will allow you to track your own observations when you're out walking on the beach, fishing, boating, or doing any other fun ocean recreation. And thank you so much for joining today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I really look forward to chatting with you more and thank you. Erin, thank you so much for such an in inspirational presentation. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time you obviously put into this. Um, it really was a wonderful set of stories that really exemplifies the value of Cal Coffee past, present and future. So uh, thank you again. Um, I don't think I'm alone in recognizing what a wonderful job you've done on, on making that so approachable. There are questions, but I know you had one point of clarification that you wanted to make about some precautionary measures that were taken. Uh, you mentioned in your talk, you wanted to just um, uh, comment on a number that you had, you had presented. Yeah, thanks Cheryl, really appreciate it. And yeah, what a pleasure. I, um, yeah, I realized in, reviewing that, I think I said 15,000 tons, it's actually 150,000 tons is the precautionary measure for sardines. And so I just wanted to clarify that for the viewers. Great, thank you. Um, one of the first questions is, uh, somebody was curious if Cal Coffee had any role in trying to uh, prevent the loss of abalone off the coast and, um, and regenerating the abalone population. Yeah, that's definitely a great question, a lot. So there 
Cal Coffee does have and has had basically since the late 40s uh, what are called Cal Coffee reports. And those have been published in tandem with the Cal Coffee Conference, which happens each year. And so I, I believe, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, but there have been reports that I've talked about the abalone fishery. Um, but Cal Coffee data are per- used more in the context of the actual kind of larger scale climate um, and other environmental changes. And so have not to my knowledge, but I'd like to hear if others have heard, uh, been used to actually kind of link directly to abalone. But kind of on a side note, uh, California Sea Grant, there are definitely extension specialists thinking about that and working on that. So yeah, definitely something I think is worth exploring. And we're we're increasingly working to connect our observations to a lot of the coastal processes because Obviously, the offshore and nearshore are not separated. They're kind of a dynamic ecosystem. So, Yeah, you did did a great job of presenting um, that. Uh, Somebody did want to know about ship-based observations and how they compare with autonomous data um, collection and the models. Um, I think the recognition is that uh, both are expensive, but ship-based data collection is obviously much more so given the day rates for ship time. Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. I... The way I like to think about it is that the ship-based and autonomous uh, observations are complementary for, kind of, to some degree, I think enhancing either the kind of spatial or temporal resolution of our samples. So taking more samples more frequently or across larger areas. So we have had partnerships with some of the gliders uh, that take autonomous data. Um, and I think the the biggest challenge right now is some of the uh, biological observations that are so central to Cal Coffee. Um, there's still, there are definitely biological sensors that can be added to various autonomous vehicles, but the the net sampling and some of that consistency of the actual long time series that you know, I chatted about, I think is such a key piece. So We've been, I think, a really essential part of that is actually having the overlap between the two, especially if kind of there is a transition that happens is really there needs to be kind of a a fair amount of time that we have an understanding of how the two are linked to really keep that time series um, consistent because it is kind of so long and valuable. Great. Thank you. Very interesting question here. Um, are sardines and anchovy uh, populations counter-cyclical? And if so, uh, do you have any idea why? Yeah, that's a great question. There's been some studies and research to suggest that there, that the oscillations kind of are uh, variable, but we've, uh, as you kind of said, like that when sardines increase, anchovies decrease and vice versa. More recently, though, there's that is starting to be somewhat questioned because there's been some interesting fluctuations, especially kind of recently with some of the the marine heat waves where they've kind of seen them coming in, not in necessarily that exact way that may be expected. Um, and some of those fluctuations tend to be related to the climate oscillations. So things like um, El Nino, Southern Oscillation, so ENSO, and um and the Pacific Decadal Oscillations are some of the larger climate 
um, oscillations that tend to produce those fluctuations. But I think there's still a l- definitely a lot of research to be done to really understand if those are actually kind of separate from each other or if there are some variables that we don't kind of fully understand yet. Our understanding is definitely expanding, but, um, but a lot more to learn. Um, how do you sample large uh, fishes and mammals? How is that type of observation conducted uh, via CalCoffee? Yeah, so for a lot of the observations um, are conducted through, well, so there's visual observations that come from the actual transects. And as the boat is moving, there's an observer collecting data, just looking at what's out on the water. And then um, for, there's also acoustic data that's increasingly, that's being used to basically listen to what the soundscape um, sounds like. And I've recently been chatting with uh, some researchers that are trying to use basically those sound signals as indicators and to really understand which individual species are um, and even to kind of subpopulation level, different vocalizations can have different effects. So yeah, really exciting, definitely exciting research there. So here's an interesting question, which you may or may not know the answer to, but can painting individual wind turbine blades, uh, different colors reduce uh, bird collisions? It's a great question. I, I'm not immediately sure. I have, I've heard something like that because it can be easier for birds and things to actually see as the turbine moves. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure on kind of the research on that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they're definitely, um, and I've also heard that there's discussions of kind of the, the speeds at which the turbines actually kind of move can also help with that, but definitely not my, <laughs> definitely not my area. Um, great. Thanks. There um, uh, is a great question uh, about how UCSD students can help or become involved uh, with this great work. Yeah, that's great question. Definitely one of my big interests. And one of the things, so I guess there's many ways. Um, and I also encourage, please do reach out to me. I'm always happy to meet people. Um So one of the things that we just, we piloted last year and are thinking about continuing is a CalCoffee hackathon. So taking the CalCoffee data and um, basically spending a week over spring break working together to see what kind of novel ways we can visualize it and think about it and also communicate it. So that's one way. And then there there are are opportunities to volunteer on the ships themselves. Um, And then also... Um, we've been increasingly doing uh, individual student projects, so research projects using the CalCoffee data. Um, and so, yeah, many different ways. Also, the CalCoffee conference is a great way to come and participate and um, be involved in some of the CalCoffee research and just to generally meet the CalCoffee community. I just want to say, Erin, again, we're getting all sorts of thank yous uh, and, and comments on an excellent presentation in the, in the Q&A. So again, thank you very much. And I hope everyone has a lovely evening and a wonderful rest of the summer. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.